From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Brendan Talaric. Today, Doug Dangler talks to Khaled Hosseini about his new graphic novel edition of his critically acclaimed bestseller, The Kite Runner. But first, we talk to Nina Couch and Beth Cattleman, curator and associate curator of the Lawrence and Lee Collection at The Ohio State University Libraries. Today, I am talking to Nina Couch, who is the curator of the Lawrence and Lee Collection at The Ohio State University Libraries, and Beth Cattleman, who is the associate uh, curator of the same collection. Welcome to Writer's Talk. Thank you. Thanks. So the Lawrence and Lee collection, as I understand it, and you'll tell me, I'm sure, a lot more, is a collection uh, around theater, right? That's true. It's the, uh, the Lawrence and Lee Theater Research Institute is the special collection for the performing arts at the Ohio State University Libraries. Okay. So what all, uh, it's named after the uh, two famous theater people, right? Yes, Jerome Lawrence and Robert E. Lee. And uh, Robert E. Lee was a playwright, and Jerome Lawrence was also a playwright. Yes, correct? they were okay. a playwriting team, actually. Okay. And uh, how long has the collection been at The Ohio State University? How did it arrive here? Well, actually, the collection has been in existence since the early 1950s. It was named for Jerome Lawrence and Robert E. Lee in 1986. So that's at the point at which it was named in their honor. How did it end up being named in their honor if it was already there? Their collection <laughs> it well, seems to follow naturally. It does. Um, they Jerry Lawrence was actually an alum of the university, and Bob Lee went to Ohio Wesleyan, so just up the road. Uh, Jerry was a very big supporter of the university, and in 1986, when there was a, a fundraising effort going on, it was decided that they would bring Jerry in to the mix, and so that was when the institute was named in their honor. And he was, uh, like I said, a great supporter of the university, also a great supporter of the Institute, and was really instrumental, he and Bob Lee, in bringing a number of wonderful collections into the Institute. So tell me about what some of those collections are. What all is in the collection? Well, certainly we obviously have this uh, core of playwriting material uh, with uh, Jerry and Bob's collection. Um, some other uh, playwrights we have are the Sidney Kingsley collection. That's a collection that Beth has worked with. Maybe you'd want to say a word about that. Well, um, that's a Sidney Kingsley was an American dramatist who uh, received the Pulitzer Prize for his drama Men in White uh, in 1934. And one of the great things about the Kingsley collection is we have very various iterations of his script, so you can see from one script to another what the revisions were, how he was reworking it. So that can be very interesting for writers. Have you studied those scripts yourself, I take it? Uh, have you looked at, if you're talking about the revisions, I'm, my next, my obvious question is, what kind of revisions uh, were done? Was there a thematic sort of thing? How much did this one guy revise? You know, we have like eight boxes of one <laughs> script, so um, I actually haven't studied all of them. Uh, not uh, gone through all eight boxes No, and I have not, oh, but uh, I've looked at all of them, but haven't studied them closely. Okay. But we have uh, produced, actually, Men in White here at the theater department as well. So we did have some students who were looking into that. We actually have a, a student who's doing her PhD work, her dissertation on Sidney Kingsley. So she's doing that in-depth exploration of the collection and looking at all of those multiple versions Nothing that currently. suggests painful uh, out of that description to look at all of these uh, iterations. <laughs> of but I think that's a really great collection because it will tell you, you know, here is a, a specific example of those revisions. I find it interesting that anyone would keep eight boxes worth of revisions. Was he that um, 
particular about everything? Uh, do you have other plays where he revised that heavily? Is that a common thread for some, for this person? That Kingsley? was a common pr- thread for him, actually. He did quite a bit of research as well. So I think as he was going along and researching more and more, that would lead to some revisions and, of course, working things out on stage and seeing what works and what doesn't. Um, so what other things do you have from well, items from Lawrence and Lee uh, themselves that are represented in the collection? Well, there are wonderful uh, documents relating to their plays. Um, you know, sort of they did Inherit the Wind, uh, Anti-Mame. Um, there's some great casting notes for instance, on um, anti-mame and mame talking about, well, I guess it's anti-mame actually, uh, looking at the different actresses who've come in to audition. And so their their opinions as the actresses have come in to audition. So are any of these well-known actresses that we have really uh, interesting comments on? Um, some of them are, <laughs> yeah. So I'm trying to be celebrity dirt here. Oh, I was you are. really well, hoping oh, that there yeah, would sorry. be... <laughs> we have a whole collection on that, actually. Yes, on celebrity do. dirt. Mm-hmm. What's this collection then also within Lawrence and Lee? That would be the Earl Wilson collection. Okay. Yes, and he was a columnist for the New York Post. Okay. And that's what he did was Celebrity Dirt. (laughs) He didn't think of it that way, though. He really (laughs) loved these celebrities, and he went out and just loved talking with them. So So is he sort of like Walter Winchell? Is that the idea? um, It was similar. He did a a column that was syndicated, um, nationally syndicated, so he uh, really wrote for the whole nation for, oh, let me see, from 1939 until about 1985. It's really amazing. Have you gotten, what kind of work has arisen out of having that collection? Is anybody in particular, say a student here studying that or a faculty member is studying that to see uh, the impact that it had on the nation as you're describing for that long period? That's a great topic. (laughs) We'll have to suggest it to somebody. (laughs) There was one master's thesis that was done out of it. It's actually generally been used more for things like unauthorized biographies. There have been a couple that have been published using that. For for things like, oh, um, uh, Marilyn Monroe. And uh, it wasn't Marilyn Monroe, actually. I can't remember exactly who. Um, but but yeah, it's a it's really an interesting collection because he knew all the celebrities and he really loved them. So were these newspaper clippings then, or these are his original uh, copy that he would turn into his editor or something? It's a combination and correspondence, um, lots and lot thousands of photographs. He took a lot of photographs himself as well. So there are things like um, there's a, a memo about Johnny Carson, you know that that alleges that he beat his wife and things like that. So all of that sort of thing. But he was very careful, actually, about checking his facts. And that was one of the things, I think, that set him apart from some of the other um, writers, other uh, mm-hmm. the dirt dishers of the period. He, he was really very good about checking. So when you say people have come in to do, say, an unauthorized biography, as, which in some ways could be fiction, Um, But it claims not to be. Do you have fiction writers coming in who say, I want to get to know this particular era for Hollywood? What was it like? Um, How is it being reported in New York or versus L.A. or other places like that? Is that the kind of research that writers could do with the Lawrence and Lee collection? Well, I think that would be great. Uh, I don't think we're one of the places that fiction writers would first look for. Most often, the type of fiction writer we would have would be playwrights. Mm -hmm. But I think that would be fantastic because there really are a wealth of resources 
that aren't just specifically about theater, but about culture in general mm -hmm. that are contained in the collection. So it certainly would be a, a resource um, for writers out there who are interested. So it's an open to the public sort of resource. What kind of things do you have to do to get access to the collection? The collection is served through the special collections reading room in the Thompson Library. So all anyone has to do is come into that reading room and fill out a, a research application form, which simply lets us know who you are and what you're interested in looking at. And the uh, people at the desk will help you locate that information. It'll be brought to you to use in the reading room. Uh, anyone can come in. We'd love to have you. Okay. We do ask um, that if you're interested in coming in and doing research, that you contact us first because we might be able to put you in touch with some resources that aren't readily accessible or easy to find uh, via the Internet or anything. And some of them are kept off-site, yeah. so we may need some time to get them over here. But we're certainly welcome anyone who wants to use them. I was wondering that. I mean, you've got to – the Thompson Library is, is, what, a year old now, if that? Two. Two. Oh, really? Okay, I'm showing, showing my yep. – uh, it doesn't seem that long ago. So you've got a lot of space in the Thompson Library, but from what you're describing, these collections would take up a lot of space, even even more than you probably have over there. So you keep them off-site uh, in like a climate-controlled area that then you, you pull them back when people ask for them. Many of the collections, well, not many, but certainly some of our collections are in the depository on Kenny Road, which is climate controlled, and it's a good site for things that you have to, that are large, for instance. Um, we have several collections that are several hundred boxes, and it's not not something that somebody's going to go through easily here. Um, we also have large collections of things that include props and stage drops, which can't be viewed at the Thompson Library. Mm -hmm. So those are not housed here. It just doesn't make sense to have them in, in Thompson. Right. Uh, what's the collection that you enjoy working with the most and you think you really, what well, somebody says to you at a cocktail party, favorite collection, one you think is, or the one you think would be best for researching and writing about? That's a tough one, but um, I do like our burlesque collection. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> tell me about the burlesque collection. Uh, the burlesque collection is um, a wide ranging collection. It's burlesque and exotic dance, and it features many historical elements. Um, so it's not just what we might think of burlesque today, but the type of burlesque that was going on back in the vaudeville days. And that's really the part of the collection that I'm fascinated with is that historic aspect of these shows that the women and men were working in, a very popular entertainments. And Therefore, they haven't been documented a lot of times. And so, so a lot of the materials that we have are the only ones. We have original materials and unique materials there. It hasn't been documented because it was considered lowbrow and beneath um, uh, attention of serious scholars? Absolutely, yes. So has anyone, now that you have the collection, do you see a turn towards that? Because there seems to be, you know, you can take popular culture courses uh, on the university, uh, at the university. Are there people that are doing work in this area that uh, uh, would be utilizing that collection? There definitely are. We had a master's student a couple of years ago who finished her master's thesis on burlesque and using that collection. I think that um, there have been several people who've used it, not at the master's thesis or dissertation level, but are using it for other kinds of publications, scholarly publications. Although it's not one of our publications, um, not one of our students, there was recently a dissertation done by another student on burlesque. So it's a really interesting area of research. It's a, it's a fascinating collection, and I agree with Beth. It, my favorite 
depends often on what's come in most recently, but I would say that the Curtis Showprint Collection, which is a, a collection of posters and heralds and printing blocks dating from um, 1905 on up through probably the 1940s from this show print company in Continental Ohio is really great because it documents the work of companies that are touring during that period, minstrel mm-hmm. shows and repertory companies and circuses and showboat companies, magicians. It's just a fabulous, rich collection. Again, touching on the kind of uh, work that was being done that was popular that isn't really documented a lot. And I think that that's where the Lawrence and Lee collection is really strong. How is the advent of being online and things like the Knowledge Bank at OSU, which holds a lot of different library resources as like visual items, right? You can go to the Knowledge Bank and look at a picture of, say, maybe one of these posters or something like that. How has that changed the way that libraries are operating these days? Well, I think that the digital world is just a great a great resource for us, especially in special collections where we have rare and fragile materials that are not made available in the same way that circulating materials are. So any kind of initiative like the Knowledge Bank can really be of benefit to us and, and to those people who want to use our materials. So uh, we, we do have, in fact, going back to the McKay Collection of Exotic Dance, a select number of images from the 19th century dancers that are up on the Knowledge Bank as a collection. And they're, they're wonderful. You know, you see these dancers that you can't find anywhere else, these images. Mm-hmm. And it always, uh, I've seen this at the Columbus Public Library where I think, you, I think this is where I saw it. You can check out a painting and take it home. You know, this big thing that makes you, that you would never really think of as being a librarian. I know that these posters you're talking about are not circulating, but it it's fascinating to me. And, and maybe this is because I grew up in a small town where you were, you know, like the very traditional librarians, don't talk, don't touch, don't look at this. But the idea of going over there and seeing the burlesque collection or posters uh, just fascinates me. Uh, how do you curate something like that? How do you say, you know, here's what we need to do to keep the posters in shape? Are they all in plastic? Well, we're lucky that uh, being at Ohio State with such a large body of resources, we have a lot of help from other folks who have expertise and knowledge in a wide variety of areas. So we have expertise in that as well, but we can draw on people if we hit uh, something, a specific case. So, um, But we try to keep up on uh, the literature and so forth is the best way to preserve and make accessible these materials without having them being damaged at all. So you just uh, when you do send over a poster, there's a special container for it that you unveil when it gets to somebody wants to look at it in the special collections. They can they can sit there and, and look at a circus poster. Absolutely. For as long as they'd yeah. like. They're typically in an oversized folder. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great big folder. But you're not folding them. Yeah. No, just, no. We, no, we try yeah. not to, although <laughs> okay. some of the one sheets are pretty big. So. Yeah. All right. Well, Nina Couch and Beth Cattleman from the Lawrence and Lee Collection at The Ohio State University, I very much appreciate your coming today and to talking to me on Writer's Talk. It's a great Thank pleasure. You. Thank you. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. That was Nina Couch and Beth Cattleman, the curator and associate curator of the Lawrence and Lee Collection at The Ohio State University Libraries. For more information about our guests, visit us at writerstalk.org. Now, Doug Dangler talks to critically acclaimed, best-selling author Khaled Hosseini 
about his new graphic novel edition of The Kite Runner. Thank you very much for being here on Writer's Talk. Um, we really are pleased to have on a writer of your caliber. And I'd like to start by just asking you to tell me a little bit about uh, the movement of the Kite Runner from a text form to the new graphic novel that's just out. Well, the idea was uh, brought to me by my Italian publishers, PMA, uh, about two years ago. And when they when they brought up the idea, I was... Uh, I was um, really interested uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I've always been a, a big fan of, of the comic books. I grew up on Marvel in DC and uh, read a lot of uh, graphic novels in the last 20 years and, and really loved the format to begin with. Um, secondly, I, I thought The Kite Runner was always a very visual story and I thought that it would lend itself very well to a sort of this illustrated visual retelling. And third, I thought that folks who hadn't read the book uh, who might have been reluctant to pick it up for one reason or another, might pick up the graphic novel and might be introduced to the story that way. I also felt younger readers uh, might enjoy the graphic novel. The story arc is the same. Some of the violence and some of the more uh, difficult subject matters have been attenuated to some degree, uh, some of the language as well. So hopefully there's another audience for this. But but largely it was done because I, I believed artistically it would be very interesting and also because I really love graphic novels. Okay. Tell me about the way that you collaborated with the illustrators of it. There are two on this, and uh, they're actually quite famous in their own rights. Yeah, Fabio and Murta. Uh, I, I actually wasn't familiar with the work initially um, and, and saw... Uh, samples of their work that was submitted to me by a time publisher and, and was very impressed. And so, um, you know, my approach was the same as it was with the film, largely that I uh, wanted them to do their artistic work without too much uh, obstruction from me. Um, once I saw some of the panel work that he did and I saw the direction he was taking and the, what uh, Fabio intended to do, I felt great confidence in him. And so I uh, simply provided the text, uh, editing the story, uh, reworking some of the dialogue and that sort of thing, and then just let him use his pen to illustrate the story. Now, it must have been difficult to go from the length of The Kite Runner, the novel, to the length of text that you said you had to edit um, to put into a graphic novel. What was that experience like for you? Did you have did it take a long time? Was it um, difficult because you had to cut out things that you really valued in the writing? That always comes with the territory. I mean, you spend a, a long time on these passages and they're meaningful to you, and you do have to cut them. So that's always difficult. And then if you're not comfortable doing that, it's probably best not to uh, undertake something like this. But um, for the sake of the format, I knew that it would have to be dramatically uh, truncated. And so I decided to focus primarily on letting Fabio tell the story visually and to use dialogue that was uh, familiar to readers, use dialogue that was central to the story, use some exposition as well. Um, but some of the more uh, quote-unquote famous passages that, that certainly passages that are very dear to readers are there. You know, Baba's uh, speech about the nature of sin, some of the taglines, uh, some of the dialogue uh, is, is lifted verbatim from the novel. But it's always uh, difficult to decide that, yes, this, this, this is meaningful to me and I work hard on this, but it really doesn't belong in a graphic novel. And so that, that part of it is, is, is that 
decidedly difficult. Now, this has been one of the uh, a very a book that's had a lot of challenge challenges to it um, by libraries and things like that. The novel has. Are you anticipating the same sort of challenges to the graphic novel, even though it's it's been toned down? Do you feel like that's another sort of emergent difficulty that's down the line for you? We'll see. It's possible. I mean, it, it, it is a story that, um, the, the, as I said, the core of the story is the same. The essential rape scene is still there. Um, the, there's a stoning scene at the end of the novel. There's a fist fight. But again, it's depicted, um, particularly the rape scene is depicted pretty impressionistically, and it's, it's not graphic at all. Um, so it's possible that there will be challenges, but uh, the the whole uh, idea of challenging the story on the basis that it was disturbing to cho- to to young readers, like high school readers, to me was a little bit uh, perplexing anyway, because this really is a story about tolerance, a story about um, love, about uh, uh, people overcoming their differences, uh, people seeking redemption. On you know, which is has deep roots in the in the Christian faith, and so I uh, I was a little perplexed by it, and I thought some of those challenges were looking at the story in a kind of superficial way, and just kind of really not looking at the context of the story. Um, certainly, the response that I have received from my young readers has been overwhelmingly positive. Many of them tell me that of all the books that are assigned to them in school to read, this is the one that they love the most because of feel so connected to the characters and many of them learn about Afghanistan by reading this book and it sparks their interest in the region. I think all those all those things are very positive things. Tell me about the reaction that you've had. You said it sparks an interest in Afghanistan and right now, uh, well, it, I guess it's sort of hard to say that right now uh, one would expect a, a resurgence in Afghanistan. It's been uh, certainly very close to the public consciousness for a, a very long time now. What's your feeling about the current things that are are happening in Afghanistan, and does this spark in you the thought of you know there'll be another another novel? Are you working on something else in that vein? Well, well I'm, I am working on another on another book um, that's partially set in Afghanistan, and it's informed to some degree about cur- uh, by current events in Afghanistan. But look, to answer your question, you know, I, I, uh, the last time Afghanistan was at peace was the mid-1970s, which was when I lived there. That's a long, long time ago. And, uh, and I, I know I speak for um, virtually all Afghan people uh, when I say that we all hope that peace will come to Afghanistan. The question is, uh, peace will come at what price? And uh, certainly, this is a time of anxiety for a lot of Afghans. There's talk about negotiating with the Taliban. And although no war ever ends without the two sides uh, essentially, eventually sitting down at the negotiating table, I think it is important to keep in mind that a lot of progress has been made in Afghanistan, that people have more human rights than they did 10 years ago, especially women, and that the negotiations are very important. I hope that they're inclusive and that they're just and that, that they, they don't compromise uh, some of the human, very basic and essential human rights that people have enjoyed in Afghanistan over the last 10 years. Now, on that line, you've left your medical practice to run your foundation uh, and to write. Tell me about the foundation. What uh, it, I think it, it has a lot of close ties to themes in The Kite Runner and some of the themes that you're talking about. 
Yeah, I, I, um, I started the foundation largely because um, I went to Afghanistan in 2007 with the UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, with whom I've, I've worked as a spokesperson. And I was uh, really heartbroken by what I saw, uh, you know, entire communities of refugees who've come back to Afghanistan after living in Pakistan, trying to restart their lives in Afghanistan, uh, rebuild the country, and uh, such a disillusioning process for many of them, uh, trying to make a go of it and in a country that's been at war for 30 years. Many of them ended up homeless, jobless, without access to water, education for their kids. And the homelessness particularly was heartbreaking for me. Uh, they lived without shelter, sometimes in holes on the ground. And so one of the, the, the focus of my foundation has been to work with the UNHCR and fund a shelter project in Afghanistan to build shelters for homeless refugees, uh, many of whom actually are, are women and children. And we've also been funding uh, projects in Afghanistan that benefit women and bring education and jobs and health care to women uh, and children. So that's been the focus of my foundation. One thing I'd like to come back to that you mentioned earlier was you felt that it was a natural transition for the kite runner to go to a graphic novel because you felt it was such a visual novel. I'd like you to expand a little bit on that because I'm wondering if that has application to your writing process that you sit down and maybe think of things in visual terms and translate that into text. I do. My um, I, there's a cinematic approach I have to writing, by which I don't mean that uh, I'm writing the books as if they were veiled screenplays. Certainly, I hope they don't read that way. But 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 I do envision scenes when I write them. The choreography, how characters move in the scene, what the setting is, you know, what what the light, uh, the shadow uh, in the scene is, and so there's a visual way in which I approach uh, writing as individual scenes. And, and the kite runner is rich, I think, in, in the scenes that are quite visual. Uh, certainly the setting of, uh, of the story in Kabul before the Soviet Union uh, invaded Afghanistan is one that is uh, foreign and alien to many Western readers because they have been living with Afghanistan that's been at war for the last 30 years. And, and so some of those scenes are quite visual and uh, in stark contrast to uh, the scenes of, of the, in the 1990s or early 2000 when the character returns to Afghanistan that's now run by the Taliban. So there's a stark visual contrast between the two settings. The, needless to say, the, the scenes of the kite flying lend themselves beautifully to uh, visual illustration. So I, I, I've always thought this was a, a good visual story. Does that, I'd like to know more about the writing process that you engage in. Um, are you a very regimented writer? Is it something you get up every day and you say, I'm going to work for the first three hours as a writer, uh, and then I'm going to do other things? Is it done in a different way? Is it spottier? Do you have certain things that you always have to do? No, I, I'm a creature of routine. And so my routine is, uh, you know, I, I exercise in the morning and then t- take my kids to school. And by eight thirty, nine o'clock, I'm ready to go. And I usually write from about 9 to 2. Sometimes that involves actual writing, and sometimes it involves a lot of sitting in front of the keyboard and worrying and kind of staring <laughs> off into space. A little too much surfing on the net sometimes. You know, I, I go to research something, and then I one thing leads to another, and the next thing you know, you're, you're on an entertaining weekly uh, homepage for reasons that you don't remember anymore. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I do try to write between 9 and 5. I don't outline at all. Uh, every morning I sit 
and uh, I'm pretty much open to whatever happens that day, outlining and having a very set idea of exactly what it is I want to say that day has never worked for me. I always end up straying from it anyway. Uh, so I'm ready for surprises every morning when I sit down to write. I try to write every day, uh, but I have two kids, and um, I do spend a lot of time with them. When they come home, then I'm theirs, and, and, um, and, and I don't work once they get home. So I probably get a lot more accomplished if I compromise some of that, but that's just something I don't want to do. Okay. Are there other novelists writing right now that you really admire and recommend as people that you should, that readers of your work would gain a lot from reading? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's up to your own taste, but certainly there's a lot of contemporary writers that I admire, people like J.M. Kutsier, who's written about South Africa so beautifully, uh, Alice Munro, who might be, um, in my mind, the greatest living short story writer who lives in Canada and has been writing short stories for decades. I'm a huge fan of hers. You know, I love Colin McCann, his novel, uh, Let the Great Wolf Spin is, is, is one of the great novels of the last 10 years. I'm currently reading Jennifer Egan's book, A Visit from the Goon Squad, and it's, it's, it's completely one of the most addictive reads uh, I've had in, in years and years. Uh, Jhumpa Lahiri, I've always been a big fan of, of her very grace, uh, graceful, effortless prose, Salman Rushdie. So it's a long list, but there's a lot of people that I admire and I read them um, both as just a reader and also uh, with an eye to learning from them. Okay. Well, I thank you very much, Khaled Hosseini, for being on Writer's Talk. And uh, I congratulate you on both the uh, publication of the new uh, graphic novel of The Kite Runner and, of course, obviously The Kite Runner and uh, the uh, A Thousand Sons and um, the other books that are forthcoming. Thank you, Doug. Much obliged. I appreciate that. Thank you. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. Special thanks to our guests, Nina Couch, Beth Cattleman, and Khaled Hosseini. For more information on any of our guests, visit us at writerstalk.org. Join us next time as guest interviewer Nicole Kraft talks to Jackie Collins about her new book, Goddess of Vengeance. Until then, this is Brendan Telerik. Keep writing.